Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2018 presenter Pamela Brown Lavitt. Pamela discusses her work on the Jewish Women's Archive, collecting rich stories that illustrate the history of Seattle. Oral history, just like filmmaking, it is at its best when it resonates with something much grander. So the motto of the International Limud Organization is wherever you find yourself, Limud will take you one step further on your Jewish journey. So could you briefly tell us a little bit about your Jewish journey? It's an interesting one. I would say that it takes many turns in the road. I grew up in Westchester, Rockland County, near Muncie, was exposed to Jewish culture to the point that I thought that all of the diversity in my town, everybody was Jewish, whether you were Irish, African-American. It, it just was a very comfortable place to grow up being Jewish, and whether you belong to synagogue or not. Um, my parents are first-generation with their grandparents. My grandparents all emigrated from other countries, and so our identity was culturally very Jewish. And I was the kid who begged to go to Hebrew school, and my parents didn't believe in it. I was the kid who wanted to know more about my background, but nobody wanted to talk about it. I would say that it was rich in family and food and locks and bagels kind of Jewish experiences and all the punctuated holidays, but it had no observance really attached to it. My father grew up Orthodox, so I knew that there was something there. Honestly, I think it was an era of recapture that my life has been in a period of recapturing who I really should have known I was. Mm -hmm. And I also think that the state of Israel kind of imposed such a narrative on the Jewish community that there didn't seem that there were other tours of duty or options or histories. But Yiddish and labor movement kind of stuff was really where I came out of, my family came out of. And I think as I gravitated as an adult towards more activist organizations and even in college, and I went to college in the South at Duke University in North Carolina, I didn't necessarily know enough of my Jewish identity and yet I was studying Middle Eastern studies because that was the that was the sort of first foot in the doors academically let me study around the Middle East. So I took mm -hmm. classes in Syria and Israel and all this kind of stuff. I was actually a science major, but that was my um, I needed to learn. I really needed to know more about it. Hillel would ask me, do you want to have bagels? And I would say, no, thanks. I'll just take my little class here and learn who I am that way, which was an interesting deflection. And I think it's a period of, you know, is in Yiddish you say bakvem, it's like comfort. I needed to find my comfort in my own skin. So fast forward, I was in graduate school and I, you know, I started dabbling in, in undergraduate and graduate and going to services and things like this. But really in graduate school, my, I went to graduate school to study Jewish folklore and theater history mm -hmm. at NYU with a woman named Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet, who many people don't know her, but they know her as BKG. She's the head of the Poland Museum now in their main exhibit. She said, Pamela, if you really want to study Jewish women in the theater, you have to study Yiddish. And that was 
literally just a complete turn in the road for me. I started studying at Columbia University. I had a fellowship there to study Yiddish, became fluent in Yiddish, and then discovered in my grandmother's desk a series of journals that were written by a great uncle of mine, all in Yiddish. So you ask about my journey. That moment was the crystallization that I had a different narrative than that of just Hebrew school or that of Israel, because I had no family in Israel. Even though my parents felt connected to Israel, it was that of Marxist, labor, Yiddish, sweatshop poet. So my great-great-uncle, a guy named Aaron Kurtz, and I now discovered at the Yiddish Book Center, was a proletariat poet. He was born in Vitebsk. I have slowly been translating his poems. So Yiddish became really, for me, the conduit to learn who I was. And I think it has stuck with me. I sang with the Workman Circle Yiddish Chorus in New York, uh, with Zalman Lotek, who just now runs the Folks Being a Yiddish Theater. So those kind of journeys for me, that was when I really discovered who I was. So that journey started with Yiddish, and I think moving to Seattle, while we live in a culture that has more diversity than just that Ashkenormative uh, So I don't brandish it a whole lot. I don't speak Yiddish with a lot of people. Obviously, it's a language that doesn't have as much life as it once did. Now, I was bat mitzvahed at age uh, 45. So I think that Yiddish was the door that most people would never have walked through to discover their Jewish journey. But that's what, that's been my journey. And now I'm much more, we celebrate Shabbat. My kids went to Seattle Jewish Community School. The identity that I didn't get as a kid, my kids are completely invested in, but they understand that Yiddish is part of that. So you were talking about how as a child you wanted to know more about your history, your parents' stories, your grandparents' stories, but you didn't quite get that from them. And I know one way you've engaged in your adult life has been collecting oral histories of women, particularly Um, and Jewish women. So could you tell us a little bit about the project that you did for the Jewish uh, Women's Archive Project? Sure. I'll just say sort of in advance, I mean, some of the work that I did was also in the Hasidic community because of Yiddish, which was really cool. I worked for the New York Folklore Society and did work in the the Yiddish-speaking community. But um, a professor friend of mine from Brandeis, a woman named Joyce Antler, She was one of my uh, advisors, basically. And she knew I was moving to Seattle. And I think I was at like presenting at one of the Berkeley Women's History Conferences. And she said, Pamela, I think I'm going to be an advisor on this huge project for the Jewish Women's Archive. Do you know who they are? I did not know who they were. And we're going to pick three cities throughout the country different sizes. Baltimore, huge, deeply rooted Jewish community. Seattle, very midline, obviously, and unique Sephardic community. Obviously, Gold Rush era is fascinating. And Omaha. (laughs) I didn't want to live in Omaha. I didn't want to move to Omaha, but I was moving to Seattle. She said, I think I'd like you to hook up with the Jewish Women's Archive. So Mm. this project was an early upstart for virtual archive. The Jewish Women's Archive, for many who don't know, brainchild of Gail Torsky-Reamer. She had a vision that we could collect and create a portal site for Jewish women's stories and create publications and history, both oral and physical, that didn't necessarily have to be in a museum. And so early on, we met with MIT. We were talking about privacy issues, all this kind of stuff. So it was really cutting edge in a lot of ways. And the goal of it was to, in each of those three cities, it was an NEH-funded 
oral history project nationally to create a cohort of advisors that would then go through a selection process. And it was a long and very beautiful process where I had just moved to Seattle and literally had met 30 amazing women who were real movers and shakers in the community who were identifying maybe 150 to 300 Jewish women who had lived the majority of their lives in the Pacific Northwest between the ages of 75 and 100. We whittled it down to 30 women, and then Roz Bornstein, also another Beth Shalomer, and I were the two oral historians on this project. And Roz comes more from a Sephardic background, and I came from more of an Ashkenazic background. But basically, it became a long-form life history interview process that we also created a guidebook to how to interview the Jewish women in your life. Before that, just as a quick side note, I had a, a fellowship with the Jewish Women's Archive to go into special collections and spend the entire summer before I did this to look through the entire Allen Library for anything that had been collected about the Jewish women in this community mm-hmm. as a reference points. OCLC and those kind of things for the library science folks didn't quite have an online avenue to find out what was in our own University of Washington library. So I spent a lot of time, and then I became very familiar with the Washington State Jewish Historical Society and its Jewish Archives Project. I listened to lots of those interviews. But inevitably, the linchpin or the crux of this, why we were doing this, was because most of the people who were interviewed, women especially, were often asked about the men in their lives, or they deferred to that conversation. Part of it is, you know, generational. But the papers that were collected, it was all about the businesses. And it was about my husband, the lawyer, and this is what he did. And this was a different form of interviewing where we delved into women's private stories, everything from very private moments of losing a child expressing milk and delivering it to a milk bank for donation. So this was about women's experiences, but we interviewed people who were behind the scenes and nobody knew who they were, but they were fulcrums in their synagogues to Althea Strom, you know, who obviously Strom Center and Strom Center for Jewish Studies was one of the women who I interviewed. So it was people behind the scenes, but they all had to tell amazing stories. And three to five hours each of those 15 women, I had 15 nonas, boobies, and grandmas when I left, and I knew a hell of a lot about Seattle history. So it was a transformative project, and it is still at the University of Washington in the special collections. People can listen. They can also Mm -hmm. go online to jwa.org. It's called Seattle Stories, so that's how you see the exhibit. I became really close with these women and spent a lot of time with them. You know, one of my closest friends died at 103, Esther Eggleston. I spent a lot of time with her, and I was pregnant also at the time. So it was a wild thing to learn that I was bringing two new Jewish women in the world, because I have twins, during this project. And then they all basically adopted me as their grandchild. So, and then them as their great-grandchildren. So it was, it was transformative personally and professionally. That sounds like the right way to uh, enter a community. <laughs> I can't imagine, and I, I would just say again, that these resources in oral history, while imperfect, and it does not, it tells, I mean, lots of people between the ages of 75 and 100 ideally can throw caution to the wind and tell their truth, right? Because, you know, I think at one point Esther said she had stories of being the, you know, secretary at Temple de Hirsch, and she would say, oh, I don't know if I want to tell that story about Mr. Schwabacher. And then she'd say, oh, what the hell, they're all dead now, anyhow. So eventually we gave them opportunity to self-censor, and most of them ultimately, I think, got to tell their truth. 
and it's their truth. It's not the truth. And that's the thing about oral history. It's, it's imperfect, but it's emotional. We learned a lot about divorce and raising children, and we learned about holding down jobs. There were so many things about Seattle specifically. Mita Butnik, of course, uh, living in an ice flat in Fairbanks, Alaska, and basically being shipped down here with a trunk to marry and become Orthodox and what she had to do to be, marry into an Orthodox family and, mm -hmm. and that journey. And I think overall, as a girl who grew up in the suburbs of New York, I had never heard the word pioneer instead of immigrant. It was really a pioneering story. It really was a, a quick study. And I do recommend to everybody listening to this, especially all those Limudniks out there, that you go to Special Collections and listen to some of the Jewish Women's Archive. You can actually go online and you listen to them. All of them have been archived digitally as well. Have you ever gotten the oral history of anyone in your own family? It's a really good question. There's an aspect to all of this that is definitely a shoemaker's daughter has no shoes. I think something in that journey that I told you about happened later in my life where some of those people that I wished that I had spoken to were gone. The only person that I did oral history is my grandmother and my husband's grandmother. So luckily we captured their stories. But one of the challenges of oral history, and this is where we started with 150 people and wound up at 30, people have to remember well. They have to be storytellers. There's a number of things that make people really good oral historians of their own experience, or we call them narrators, basically, of their mm -hmm. own lives. And not everyone is. And um, both of my grandmothers, one of them had a lot of trauma from growing up in Poland, and most of her family perished. And my other grandmother, I think, was much more of a traditional housewife and didn't know that she could speak up. We used to fight this with a lot of our narratives. We'd say, she'd say, well, uh, why do you want to know that? I was just a, and we called it the just a complex, you know. <laughs> so I think it's a meta narrative for a lot of kids who are sort of second generation is that their history skips a generation. Secrecy. They, you know, Yiddish was called Soydishbrechen for a reason, you know, secret language for a reason. We don't want the kids to know. We don't want them to know about our trauma. We don't want them to know about their history. We want to be American. We don't want to speak this language. All of that, I think I'm sort of a product of not talking. So it's a weird thing that I've learned how to become an oral history and pull other people's stories out. I think my mother is the next one. But these are folks that want to forget. They don't want to know about the past. My grandmother was the one who told me about my Marxist proletariat poet uh, uncle, which was really cool. But I haven't really done a whole lot more of oral history in my own family. I probably should. So one thing I thought was interesting that you said is that some things make people good narrators. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and maybe think about what does make a person a good storyteller. What makes them a good oral historian? I would say that the word storytelling, it's really interesting just to look in our techie world. Like, the, you know, people are chief storytellers at Hewlett Packard, you know, or chief storytellers at Microsoft. The word storytelling has become something in the social media climate that we live in that's completely different, but it does bring it all together. Even KJM, which is the, uh, the Jewish Museums conference that I've often attended, storytelling is the crux of how museums have decided to get out of musty and move into experience. And, you know, some of the work of my 
mentor BKG is also on museums and how you get people to identify with the Holocaust. You can't just tell them a story. You have to have them experience the story. So I think the answer of, to get back to your question of what makes a good narrator, is someone who has an arc of holding back, actually, that they want to tell you something about themselves, but there is often a arc to the story. In back in my theater days, which is something that I did in college, you know, they said, where is the love? Where's the conflict? Where is the humor? And I think that those are things that you need in theater, but they're also things that you need in storytelling. Mm. And obviously, you can weave all of those together, but you have to uh, both have a story. It has to have an arc, and it probably needs to have some kind of tension in it. And the final answer to your question, because I can talk a streak here, is... A lot of the time, oral history breaks out of the narrative. And so you call it a narrator, but you're breaking out of their pat stories. You have to get behind the story. You have to get behind the experience, the emotion, the love, the conflict to really be tell your story. And if you're a person who packages it, an oral historian can spend three hours with you because they'll get behind it. So Roz Bornstein, who was my fellow oral historian and is also a therapist, and there's different relationships between those two, offered me quite a few tools, but the best thing you can say is tell me more about that because most people stop their story where they're comfortable. So I think that the best narrator tells you more. Another thing that you said before that I found very interesting was this idea of just a, I think, a social pattern of women diminishing their own roles. And what I'm wondering is, did you break through some of that in your interviews? And how did that happen? And what realizations did people come to when they realized that their story was as important as any other story? I mean, I mentioned Esther Eggleston, and I think that she's a grand example of that. She stood four foot ten. She lost her husband when her child was three years old. She had to work through the Depression. She was the secretary. She was called Mrs. T for Mrs. Temple, as in Temple de Hirsch. She had to attend, despite being a single mother, almost every wedding, bar mitzvah, every life cycle event, every confirmation, She was dealing with a lot of things and never seen, even though she did have the name Mrs. T. And I think that she she did a couple of things in that synagogue. She got health care for the employees, and there were only about four or five employees there. She was angered by the injustice of allocated seating at the temple. She said, why should all you big-moneyed folks get those best plum seats She got rid of that. So she called herself a bulldog. I think that she found her voice, but she had never told anybody. She did it in the boardroom. She did it in a quiet way. But I think during the Oral History Project, she discovered that she was really proud of her accomplishments. I mean, on the other spectrum, there were women like Bernice Stern, who was the first King County Councilwoman who I interviewed. And she ran on a platform of being a housewife come councilperson. She was also an archivist, so she kept her own archive. I mean, the stuff she had was amazing. It was the penny-pinching housewife was literally her moniker. She would go and serve cookies on buses as a way of ingratiating people to her message. And then she became known as the fairy godmother because it was the era of the fairy system. And she was a public transportation advocate. 
she she always regrets never having been able to create a light rail system, which was her biggest regret. So she came at it like I served and this and that. But at the same time, at the end of the day, she came out of humble beginnings. There were a number of women that I interviewed also that would like to have become rabbis that were extremely learned in Talmud. You know, they were little brewerias of their time, you know. So they were studying Torah, but they didn't have anywhere to go with it. And some of them were, you know, got on the bima, even in their Orthodox synagogues, much later in life, almost at 90 years old. And all of those journeys were incredible journeys of their own empowerment. I do think that the time spent with them getting past the Justa complex gave them a chance to talk about how they have shown later in their lives. I think it's a wonderful gift that these records exist. And I'm wondering, have you ever heard from like the families of these women that have <laughs> gone back and have been able to hear the stories that they might not have heard otherwise? Yes and no. We delivered transcripts and copies of the CDs to all of the families. There were some that never wanted them to see the light of day. And that was just sad, but it might have been that in the five hours, some small thing was mentioned that was a family secret or whatever. And we kind of redacted them as per their wishes. But sometimes the next generation was not as enthusiastic. Uh, I had a grandchild say, we just discovered these. And I just listened to them. And I can't believe that this exists. And I think that this is a product of it happening right before the social media moment. And that these were still hard copies and transcripts. We had to honor that generation's way of absorbing the information. And that it wasn't, it didn't go up into the digital world until probably five, ten years later. And many of them are gone. And so the question of how much they were proud of it or gave them to their families, I would say out of the 15 narrators that I had, I've only heard from two of their families over the years. So... To go back to the original project, um, you were talking about how you created a handbook, and I got a hold of some copies, not of the handbook itself, but of some of the sample questions that you created. So you have this document that says 20 questions to ask the important women in your life. And I just want to make sure, it yeah. really Jane Guberman okay. is the author of this. She gives a nod to those of us that participated in the process, but we were part of the process of her publishing this book. It's a guidebook. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think the Jewish Women's Archive has done a great job of creating oral history kits and those kind of things that you found on the internet, which mm -hmm. is 20 questions for a Jewish woman or 10 questions for a Jewish woman. Right. Yeah. And when I was reading those questions, it was a wonderful experience because I would eventually, if I get the chance to, interview my grandmother. But even when I was reading the questions, these memories of stories she's already told me came up. And so I thought the questions were brilliant because a lot of those very interesting stories, those very emotional stories are, are like captured within these ideas. So you said you didn't write the document itself, but you contributed to it. So did you put some thought into what the best questions were to elicit these stories, and how did you contribute? It's a crazy story, but we were together for 9-11, mm. and we all got caught in a hotel in the area near the Pentagon, and I was stuck with my friends at the Jewish Women's Archive for a week in the D.C. area. It was, it was a crazy, crazy time, but we spent a lot of time 
meeting, we met like three or four times with all the oral historians throughout the country, and we worked on these questions. We talked about what was working, what didn't work, what were the nuances. I mean, Jane Guberman, this is what she does professionally. She is a oral historian. They also have gone on to do oral historians of Jewish women in Katrina. This was the precedent, but we were part of a brainstorming group that met and delivered what would ultimately become the published guide to the questions. But no matter what, these are just guidelines, and you have to get specific bullet points to ask people about based on their pre-interview or based on their lives and who they were. Um, so if I wanted to interview my grandmother or if someone listening to this wants to interview someone in their lives, do you have advice like how much time to set aside, where to do it, in what kind of seating arrangement to do it? And even I was wondering maybe advice on how to keep the recording or edit the recording or use the recording afterwards. So any objects, photos, they should be in the middle of the table or wherever you are in advance. So you give them uh, some advance notification about what it takes. You have to have a, a quiet corner. And in generally speaking, I think that the only other important thing is you just, you have to monitor your own reactions to things and not respond and just use your face just like you're doing now, you know, while I'm speaking is you don't want to interrupt the flow of things. And I, I missed the last part of your question, actually, but I think you asked about what it takes to kind of get the best interview in terms of what technical parts you use in editing. We were using MP3 players at that point. Anything that captures HD, you can edit it yourself now. We had to have it professionally edited. And ultimately, I think that if I were to do it again, the women at that time were uncomfortable on video. I would actually say video mm. is the way to go. Most of those women were uncomfortable. They feared anti-Semitic responses to themselves in a virtual website space. It was not a great time to be brandishing being Jewish in the cutting edge world of the, the web and social media. Camera is the best thing to do. But if you just want to capture somebody, one camera and a conversation for your family. But if you want to do anything bigger and better, mm -hmm. you really do need to hire a professional for camera. For the last question, I just want to bring it back to the session that you led at Limud Seattle 2018, the Real Jewish Panel, where you had a group of uh, Jewish women filmmakers. So can you tie that into your interest in oral history, storytelling, uh, the stories of Jewish women. Oral history is a long and deep tour of someone's life and their opinions and their thoughts. And academically, also, there's something I love doing work in museum work and in the Jewish Film Festival and even all presenting the artists that we do from the, the Jewish Community Center in terms of our arts and ideas stage. Those things all felt like all those stories were lacking from our community. Once in a while, a Jewish author would tour through town. So everything that I feel like we're doing is bringing s Jewish stories into the city. But I feel that one of the things I've loved the most in switching over from the academic world to public exhibition and presentation of other artists is cultivating relationships with emerging artists and helping them tell their story. Uh, the Kroll Foundation used to have a documentary film fund, and they would bring in an academic uh, exhibitioner like myself um, who exhibits Jewish film work 
and we would look at all the grant applications and then give finishing funds to documentary filmmakers. And I think in my role in the Jewish Film Festival and having run the festival for 15, 16 years in the city is to help those who are on a path to making a story, refine it in such a way that it'll be as most successful. So mm-hmm. one example of one of those panelists is my dear friend, uh, Lisa Cohen. And she started out making a, f- a documentary film. She was a mom with kids and the story was in Boston. And she said, I don't know if I can really tell the story the way I fully can. So together she showed me all of her clips and with this. And I said, I think you have a short film here. And she produced a short film instead of a full documentary length film. I can't say it was just because of me. I mean, it's resources and, you know, Kavanaugh community got really behind it. And it was it was such a great thing. And now that film, it showed all over the world. And it was called B-Boy. And she made a second short film about bullying. And now that got picked up by the Seattle schools. A lot of the women who served on that panel, it's a struggle to be a filmmaker. And And so helping them hone their message a little bit so that it'll take off across the country. I love just having the relationship with women who are out there putting their resources, their energy. I'm their biggest advocate in ensuring that there's an audience for their film. And just tried to take all that knowledge of the communities that I've lived in, New York and San Francisco and here, and see how those communities and the Jewish film audiences are going to receive it and hopefully give it lift It reminds me a little bit about when you're talking about what makes a good storyteller and how they have to create an arc and create that tension and humor and love. So it seems like even though the two genres are pretty different, telling your own oral history versus creating a a new story, be it documentary or fictional, there is some tie-in between the two. To the extent that storytelling is both about specifically and hyper-personal, oral history, just like filmmaking, it is at its best when it resonates with something much grander and much larger. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. The Seattle Limooncast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Levicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Pamela Brown-Lavitt.